Hello and welcome to this episode of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Anders Johnson coming to you from the ILO in Geneva and today we're going to talk about and celebrate the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Since 2015, the 11th of February has been a day to recognize the critical role women play in science and technology, but also to promote what the UN calls the full and equal access to and participation in science for women and girls. However, we're still far from achieving equality in this field. This matters because there is an enormous demand for STEM skills, science, technology, engineering and math, and if not enough women are inspired and encouraged and supported in studying science, they risk missing out on the jobs of the future. And we would all be poorer for it if we lose the perspectives and experiences that women bring to the table. The world needs science and science needs women and girls, as seen so vividly during this pandemic. Women have led groundbreaking research and been on the front lines of COVID-19 response as scientists, healthcare workers, and more. Yet, according to UNESCO, only 33% of the world's researchers are women. In addition, the higher you go in the scientific professions, the less women one finds. So what should we be doing to get more women and girls interested in science, but also keep them in science? To answer those questions and a lot more, I'm incredibly honored and excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker, astrophysicist at the Curtin University node of the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. She's an award-winning astronomer, passionate about understanding the universe, and luckily for us, she's also passionate about bringing the beauty of astronomy to the world. Now, after obtaining her PhD in radio astronomy from the University of Cambridge, she moved to Australia where she helped create the first ever panoramic view of the universe at low radio frequencies. And earlier this year, she had the scientific community aflutter with her team's latest discovery. So, Dr. Hurley Walker, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Anders. Great to be here. Well, I, I just have to bring this up first, because I'm a terrible geek, but your team made a discovery, which was in the news recently, and which had a lot of the fans of astronomy really excited. So, so what was it, and what was so significant about your findings? Yeah, that's right. It's been a very wild ride. Uh, so I'm a radio astronomer and my science involves mapping the sky using radio waves. So radio waves are just a long wavelength kind of light. And we do this with fantastic radio telescopes. So usually I'm working on putting together really deep, beautiful images of the universe. Um, but we had a, uh, we're doing a big survey uh, of the entire sky. And I thought it would be a fun student project to look at what changes between our observations. So in 2020, I supervised a very capable undergraduate student, Tyrone Odoetti, and he took pairs of observations that we'd made at radio frequencies and looked at what changed. And we didn't really expect to see anything because at low radio frequencies, usually the universe is pretty static. We're looking at distant galaxies far away, we're looking at our own Milky Way and sort of cosmic magnetic fields. But he found this radio source that switched on and then it disappeared. And that was really, really unusual. We weren't expecting to see something like that. So in 2021, he moved on to do a PhD with some fantastic colleagues. Uh, in 2021, I looked further into the data and I found that the source not only was switching on and off, but was switching on and off in this regular clockwork fashion. 
And it was doing so at a time cadence that had never before been seen. So we do know about some radio sources which switch on and off. Um, you might have heard of pulsars. They are rotating neutron stars. So they're these incredible collapsed remnants of massive stars with huge magnetic fields. They beam out radio waves. And as they spin, the radio waves sweep across what our line of sight, like what we're looking at, and we see a pulse. So we were seeing something that looked a bit like that, but really slow, repeating once every 18 minutes. And this basically challenges everything we know about neutron stars <laughs> uh, and everything we know about things that blink in space. So nobody expected this. And it's been just a crazy ride, like taking this discovery to conferences and saying, what do people think it is? And uh, people going, I have no idea. This is incredible. <laughs> so that's that's been really fun. Um, you know, I've discovered a lot of things in my career, but discovering something totally unexpected, uh, that's just been the absolute highlight. So yeah, that's why everyone's very excited because no one knows quite what it is, although we mm -hmm. do have some good theories. Because the, the one question that I immediately, at least a lot of articles bring up, obviously, is, is this sign of extraterrestrial activity? And yet, sort of the idea that it's not, in many ways, is actually more interesting, it, it seems to me, because it sort of asks, as you said, you know, more questions about our knowledge of how the universe works. Is that, is that your sense? Yeah, that's right. So we know it's not aliens because it looks just like a natural object, right? There's no information encoded in these pulses. Mm -hmm. They operate across a really wide range of frequencies. So the power involved with generating a pulse like this, well, it, you need the power of a rotating neutron star with a massive magnetic field, right? It's not something that any civilization could possibly do. Or if they did, they'd have better things to do than send out a signal that looks exactly like a natural object. So I think it is really exciting in a completely different sense. Um, it's showing us that the universe still has the capacity to, to surprise us. So we have theories about how the universe works and what it's made up of, but to find something completely unexpected, you know, challenges those theories. And so I've been really uh, happy to bring this discovery to the community. And I know it's put all of astronomy in uh, a little bit of a fluff. Everybody's trying to come up with ideas. And of course, uh, I think that we're going to find more of them and that will help us solve the mystery. Well, that's fantastic. So, so tell us a little bit more about your work as a radio astronomer. I mean, what does this entail? And, and why do you think perhaps it's important that we do it? So radio astronomy was invented in the 1920s um, by uh, Jansky and, and Reba, uh, who sort of first noticed that there were these radio waves coming from the universe. And that was really the first time that anyone had noticed electromagnetic radiation coming uh, from a different frequency other than what you can see with your eyes. And for a long time, people just didn't really believe that it was interesting. They, um, so Reba was this fantastic chap. He presented a map of the sky in radio waves to the most distinguished astronomers of his day. And um, they just had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. They were like, well, this is just some kind of engineering thing. We don't, we don't know what to do with this. It doesn't gel with our existing theories. And it took like a decade of, of advancement uh, and World War II, frankly, for people to be using radio for other means to get the technological advances to the point where people could um, really understand what was happening with the radio waves. And then suddenly everybody wanted to be a radio astronomer because radio astronomy reveals things that are far outside our Milky Way. And some of the radio sources that people found turned out to lie 
billions of light years away. And that challenges our very understanding of the size of the universe. So it's kind of like the Copernican revolution where you go from just looking at our solar system and the planets moving around the sun. That's a, you know, a development above the sun moving around the earth. And then you realize, oh, that solar system's in a galaxy. But then to go from that to this galaxy is part of this huge cosmos. So radio astronomy has been really instrumental there. Um, the other thing it does is uh, it opens up that spectrum. So once you realize you can do radio astronomy, well, why not everything in between? Microwave, infrared, go beyond, do X-ray, gamma ray. It was the start of what we call the multi-wavelength revolution. And that has now led to the multi-messenger revolution, which is now that we're using neutrinos, cosmic rays, gravitational waves. So it was that first step in exploring an invisible universe and it's still hugely important in astronomy today. Yeah, the universe really is full of wonders. Yeah, it really is. So turning to the issue of women in science, are there a lot of women in astronomy? What's, what's been your experience in, in that field? We have a really good gender balance in the early career stages of astronomy. So we'll typically see uh, in the sort of master's degree and PhD programs about 50-50 female to male, and usually for the first um, couple of postdocs, that's also true. But there is definitely a paucity of women at the higher positions. And the drop-off, it really happens at this very difficult part in your career where you uh, potentially want to have children or you have, uh, your, you know, your parents are getting a little bit older, so you might have other caring responsibilities. Perhaps you want to settle down, you know, start a family. But also, there become fewer jobs on the market um, uh, as you go to more senior levels. It, it becomes very competitive. If you're in the United States, there's this you know really difficult period of trying to get onto the tenure track, um, you know, and, and a similar uh, situation replicated across much of the world. Um, if you know the German situation, there's the Ich bin Hanna movement, where in Germany and to some degree the Netherlands as well, you can only have a, sh a small number of what are called postdoctoral contracts, so short-term jobs after your PhD. And after that, you need to land a permanent position. So these things tend to kind of collide for women. Uh, they're not great for men either. This is a bad system for everybody. But it's particularly difficult for women because we can't put off um, having children past a certain age. So uh, it becomes a little bit of a bottleneck. And unfortunately, astronomy is not really any better at this than anywhere else. So uh, I definitely have fewer senior female colleagues than male colleagues, but there are lots of champions for changing this. And it's one of the things I'm really passionate about. And I think at least part of that is to, to share one's experiences, to be open about it, to talk about it and to push for change. So, so what do you think studying science contributes to, to people's character, uh, personality or, or, or general outlook on life? I mean, why should we be encouraging this? I think in a complicated world and a complex world like we have, it's really important to be able to master skills of critical thinking, analyzing risk, you know, looking at things in a kind of quantitative fashion. And certainly as the COVID pandemic has revealed, understanding things like exponential growth uh, is really important. And when we look at the big challenges that are facing our species, like climate change and biodiversity loss and pollution, we need to be able to synthesize information across a range of sources and kind of assess the credibility of those sources. So these are skills that perhaps are being siloed a little bit into 
uh, STEM careers. And I, I feel like these are wide skills that we all need as humans um, living in a complex society as we do, which is why I'm so passionate about outreach for science, because it's not just about inspiring people and saying, oh, look at this beautiful picture I made of the universe. Uh, it's about introducing them to things like the scientific method and how peer review works. So I'll propose an idea, another scientist will knock it down and I'll say, thank you. You know, not, no, my idea is correct. I have to stick by it. I'll say, thank you for challenging me. And together we're going to get better and closer to the truth. So I think there's a lot of really good philosophical um, aspects of science. And I think that, you know, it's not the only way to live. You've got to have ethics in there. You've got to think about morality sociology there's lots of uh, other important ways of looking at the world but i do think um science is a is a really key part to navigating the complexity of the world that we're in so what inspired you to get into science well uh quite frankly i was six years old and we just moved to the united states so i was born in the uk and we moved there for my parents work and I think I was jet lagged. We had just moved into this little tiny house and we had wrestled a TV into place to try and keep uh, us kids, you know, <laughs> our attention off all the moving boxes while my parents were sorting things out. And uh, my dad put on a TV show and the, the volume on the TV was set to absolute maximum. You know, just it, that was somehow it had ended up in that position. And it just so happened that the Starship Enterprise at that moment appeared on the screen with a huge blare of trumpets, you know, the, the, the first opening bars of the Star Trek Next Generation theme. And my tiny mind just exploded, I think. <laughs> and I was absolutely hooked. I had to watch, it's like Thursdays at seven o'clock, I had to watch every single Star Trek Next Generation episode that came out. And I guess we arrived in 1989, which was, I think in the middle of like season one or two. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to watch all of Star Trek. And my son is called Jean-Luc. I am a big Star Trek nerd, um, unapologetic about it. My, my daughter's middle name is Catherine. Uh, if anyone gets the reference. So yeah, Star Trek did play a big part um, in kind of getting me interested. And then after that, it was just this way of looking at the world, you know, um, being able to understand more and more about it by working together with different people. And as well, that idea that unfortunately the universe is kind of hard to explore on a spaceship. It takes a lot of effort and time. And frankly, we don't live long enough to go anywhere really exciting. So uh, when I discovered telescopes and that you could explore the universe while staying in one place, I mean, I'm very happy. <laughs> this is what I want to be doing. Well, in, um, in, in 2019, I read you were named by Science and Technology Australia as one of the superstars of STEM. What, what is its aim? Yeah, it's a fantastic program run here in Australia by Science and Technology Australia. And what they notice, so they're a, an organization that uh, represents all of the professional scientific societies in Australia to the government. And what they noticed was that when they looked at media interviews and who was being um, asked about the latest findings, who was being quoted, they noticed that women were not being quoted in nearly as many media articles as men. The ratio was something like five to one. Despite the fact that while our gender bias in science is not, you know, it's not great, uh, it's nowhere near, uh, you know, 80-20. So they thought, well, this is terrible because who's reading these articles? The general public and young women, you know, are, are going to be reading these articles and thinking that all scientists are men. 
And um, there's those uh, classic bias experiments where they have children draw uh, a scientist and every child was drawing a man. So they decided, you know, this is one of the things that's stopping women from getting into science is that they don't see themselves in science. And, you know, I say Star Trek was a big inspiration to me, but I have to say as well, it was super important. I was living in Houston and Sally Ride was one of the you know first female astronauts. Well, she's the first female astronaut, but there was a female cosmonaut before her. But you didn't hear much about that in Texas. Um, but knowing that a woman had gone into space, it wasn't like I wanted to be her or anything. It was more that it just told me, oh, there's a place for me in in space research, in astronomy. And so, so STA have noticed, oh, well, look, we need to raise the visibility of women. There are female scientists, it's clearly loads of them, but they're not getting their voices heard. So they formed the Superstars of STEM program to um, every two years choose a cohort um, of talented women across Australia in all sorts of different scientific disciplines and give us a bit of media training, um, a bit of like public speaking and, and that sort of, uh, you know, um, training to make us a little bit better communicators if needed and do a bit of networking and um, that sort of soft skills and then ask us to do outreach with schools, you know, put ourselves forward in the media. And amazingly, so this has been running for about six years now and the proportion of women cited in, you know, in articles that are being quoted in TV and, and radio is going up. So the program seems to be working or, you know, as well perhaps it's indicative of a larger social change. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, uh, there's this phrase, you can't be what you can't see. I'm not entirely sure I 100% agree with that. Someone's always got to be the first. Someone's got to be Marie Curie or Ada Lovelace. But um, it certainly helps. So, so what kind of actions then have you seen that have been effective in getting more girls into studying science or, or at least in terms of encouraging them to stay in scientific fields? Yeah, so the, there's two questions there. So one is getting women into science in the first place. And I would say that the bias there starts actually really young. So in primary and early secondary school, by late secondary school, there's not a lot you can do. You know, girls have chosen their subjects of interest. And if that point they've been uh, moved or you know biased out of a scientific discipline, then they're not going to change their minds when they're 18. So I noticed this in primary schools, and I'm not a sociologist. I, I find it I'm not across all the best ways to encourage this, but I think having that visibility and making sure that um, you know you don't segregate boys and girls and have boys working in the workshop while the girls do the knitting. You know, there's there's some obvious <laughs> wins there, um, but the problem can get kind of exacerbated by these unconscious biases. So. My amazing PhD student, Catherine Ross, she runs a program here in Australia called Include Her. And she looked at the New South Wales, uh, which is one of the states of Australia, high school physics syllabus. And she counted the number of times a male scientist was mentioned. And she counted the number of times female scientists were mentioned. And do you want to have a guess of what she found? Oh, 80, 20, more or less again? Uh, try... Uh, only male scientists noted, no female scientists. Wow. Not even Marie Curie, uh, who's, you know, renowned physicist, discovered radioactivity. The, there were two women mentioned in the curriculum. Um, Edna Krivapel and Maggie Simpson were used as examples in, uh, you know, sort of treated as, as objects in a, really? in a kind of scientific diagram, you know, explanation. So uh, that's an appalling failure 
um, and a, a real, you know, display of the kind of biases. If women are taking this, young women are, are, are taking this course, they're not going to see themselves um, in the, the scientists' names. They're going to see themselves drawn in a diagram and used as an object of fun. That's awful. So she's taken it on herself to um, run up. She runs this campaign, include her, and lots of volunteers across Australia are going through all the curricula and uh, proposing changes. And so she has had success with some of the state governments in changing their curricula. So I think the first one uh, comes into practice like maybe next year in Queensland, I think, um, to update their curricula so that there are female scientists mentioned when, you know, appropriate, when they've discovered something. It's that simple. So there's that bias in that sector. Uh, We do notice that when research is presented as an option, Women love it. It's a fantastic thing doing research, working with people, exploring things, being okay with being wrong and learning from your mistakes. Uh, These are all skills that either gender can master perfectly successfully. So we find perfectly equal enrollments, typically at sort of master's and PhD. As I say, it gets difficult when you get to um, this, this difficult age of choosing whether to start a family or perhaps you have more caring responsibilities. And so at that stage, you know, obviously a different intervention is is needed. And I'm seeing a lot of success with programs that support mothers to attend conferences that give them the support they need when they transition back from maternity leave. Um, things like flexible working, being able to drop down to part time uh, and then come back up to full time again, teaching support. There's a whole range of different measures. Um, it's clearly not perfect because we still see the gender bias. Um, and I guess for the really serious uh, actions, Lisa Cooley wrote a fantastic paper last year about the kinds of affirmative action that are needed. And essentially, at, at some level, people are still hiring people who look like them. So some level of quotas or um, you know women-only positions are needed. Otherwise, I think she projected we won't see gender equity, at least in Australian astronomy, for over 100 years, which is... Uh, too long to wait. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, a, a lot of these uh, examples that you have mentioned seem to be t- oriented towards women. But, but, but what do you think that, what is the role perhaps of men? What, what would be my role in a sense? What do you think perhaps men or male scientists should be doing to make science more inviting for women and girls? Yeah, I think that's a really lovely thing to ask. And um, there's a whole range of things that can be done from a small scale up to a a large scale. So small scale things are classic allyship. You know, if there's a woman in the room and she makes a suggestion and nobody listens, amplify her voice, don't steal her idea. Um, If there is someone, if there's a meeting and someone offers to take the minutes and it's a woman and there's perfectly, you know, there's more men than women in the room and there's no particular reason why a woman should be doing this, offer to take the minutes. Um, You know, there's all these little actions that you can take that, reduce this kind of default academic housework uh, on, our, on our female staff. But up to the kind of bigger changes, you know, actually listening to the women. <laughs> so a lot of the time, you know, uh, mid-career women will put their heart uh, on the line. They'll say, these are the challenges I have. You know, I have a child with disabilities. I have, I'm separated. I'm, I'm doing this as a single mum. I have too much teaching load and I can't get the research done because I'm working part time. So the research falls to the wayside while I do the teaching. Hear me. And what they need is for uh, people who are in charge, who predominantly tend to be men, to listen and give them the support that they need. 
So I can't be prescriptive and say uh, exactly what all male uh, sort of senior leaders should do, but it can definitely start with listening to the women who are having the problems and helping them. You're an absolute star. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Anders. It's been uh, lovely to be here, and I hope people have enjoyed me talking a little bit about what it's like to explore the universe. I'm sure they have. And to all you science fans out there, thank you for listening in today, and I wish you all a really great International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Our guest was astrophysicist Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker, and I hope that she inspired you all as much as she did me. Finally, if you want to know more about her work or more about the future of work, please visit our website at voices.ilo.org for more interviews and stories like this one. And of course, please join us again for our next episode of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. For now, goodbye. <laughs>